Hey, I'm going to do something that we haven't done in quite a while at the mill and uh, in reverence for God's word. I'd like to ask that you stand with me one more time, if you would. And let's read from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. We'll do so aloud together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful self-condemned. You may be seated. Father, as we get into uh, your holy word today, I just ask that you would remind us how beautiful your gospel is. God, that once again, for a third week, we, your people, might be reminded and compelled to do good works because of what you have done for us We're saved by grace, through faith, to good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul, our author, talks about how the gospel reshapes how we feel about people on uh, the outside. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes a temptation to think of myself or ourselves as morally superior, to have some kind of disdain toward those who don't believe, especially if if watching television, you know, pop culture just seems to hold so much animus toward people of faith and They don't seem to always interview people like you all. They seem to pick the nuttiest 
fruit on the vine, you know, and have them talk for three minutes. And it's just like, are you serious? You know, this sure isn't like any Christians I know or that we have in our church. Why don't you interview one of them? The world may look a little more favorably on on the lost or rather on the saved. The key word in those first couple verses we read together is the word all. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Does that include our enemies, do you think? Of course it does. Absolutely. And so I think we can afford to disagree and still be courteous. Would you agree? You can't do that in today's political landscape. Is it possible that we, the people of God, might rise above the political landscape? I certainly hope so. Do so in a gentle manner. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. in representing a group in our country that had every right to be angry. He was subversive, but he was also submissive. He was kind. He was respectful. This is the kind of Christianity Paul is getting at. And in verse 3, he gives us one of the most clear, concise explanations of the gospel that's found in his letters. And you'll notice that in, in Paul's commands, they, they kind of flow out of what he declares to be true of the gospel. He'll give um, what theologians uh, might call um, an indicative, or this is indicative about the circumstance. This is, this is factual. This is information. Now let me give you an imperative, what we are uh, to do about it. And I think this morning, the imperative, both for the lost and for the people of God, stems from what happened, the indicative. Namely, a crucified, resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we sang, and kudos to you very passionately, too, uh, this morning. He leads us, incentivizes us, promotes us to act on his behalf. When we rightly understand or behold, this is the theme of Titus, we've been repeating it again and again, what he's done for us, then our obedience comes quite naturally. It's not forced, it's not coerced, it simply rolls out of our deep love and appreciation for Jesus. Let's take, for example, verse 3. When Paul starts to give some indication or an indicative about what was the case regarding the people of God, he says, and this is a little depressing, for we ourselves were once foolish, foolish meaning ignorant or warped in our thinking. How many of you say, before I met Jesus, I was warped in my thinking, to be honest. Okay, we have one truth teller in the bunch. The indicative is that you and I, Paul says, were spiritually stupid. We were morally morons. We didn't know up from down. 
Paul would say it uh, in Romans elsewhere. We thought the light was the dark and the dark was the light. We had it mixed up. Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian pastor who died about the time I was born, told us to imagine what would happen if we all got to heaven and learned that God had put a tape recorder around our neck our whole lives. Now, in Francis Schaeffer's day, there was such a thing, uh, you millennials, called a tape recorder. And you didn't say to Siri or to Google Voice or whoever was on your device, record this. You pressed a record button. It had a big red circle on it. And you could record yourself. And he said, what would happen if we had one of those around our neck? You could wear them around your necks. And you get to heaven. And and what if God, what if that recorder was triggered by the word ought? I ought to do this. I ought to do that. Francis Schaeffer pointed out um, rightly that no one in any religion would pass that test. If they stood before God and he played back all the things that we said we ought to do. In other words, we love darkness rather than light. And, and what we did even is, is um, we, even when we were aware, were disobedient. It's not just that we were ignoramus. Anybody ever heard that, that, that word? You see it on the Cracker Barrel uh, little triangle game that you play with the pegs. If you leave four or more pegs on the board. Schaefer is saying, even when we know what to do, we screw it up. Paul put it this way. Although they knew God in Romans chapter 1, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Pastor, what are you saying? What are you getting at? I'm saying the indicative that Paul starts with, what what he's trying to indicate to bring to our attention is that humanity was not only deceived, humanity wanted to be deceived. Humanity enjoyed its own deception. It wasn't that we hung out with the wrong crowd, in other words. It's that we liked the wrong crowd more than we did the right crowd. Or you can think of it this way. In our hearts, we've always been part of the wrong crowd. That's why we preferred the wrong crowd. We were born. This is a central truth of the gospel. We were born with a disposition toward not right, but what? Wrong. How many of you have children? How many of you would say, that's obvious? I have never, on a Saturday, woken up, neither has Shannon, to a swept floor. Ever. Instead, I wake up to what? Milk that spilled all over the countertop misses the bowl entirely. Um, And kids pointing fingers at each other who did it. We didn't send them up to a camp, right, to learn how to lie. They just do that. It's innate doing, doing wrong. And so we choose wrong uh, as adults, um, not because it's, it's learned behavior, but because it's, it's in us. And the biggest 
lie that we choose to believe is that if we reject God's laws, we're going to experience some kind of freedom that we've never experienced before. That's what culture continues to tell us over and over and over and over again. It's exactly the opposite in reality. When we reject God, as Paul says in verse 3, we become slaves to other passions, other pursuits. All of us, Pascal, Blaise Pascal put it, have a God-shaped hole on the inside of it, and we try to stuff it with our idols that do not happen to be God-shaped. What happens? They don't fit, no matter how hard we cram them. It can even be something virtuous like a marriage. If you think that when you get married, it's going to fill a God-shaped hole in your soul, that piece ain't going to fit right. You're going to find you can't manipulate it into that spot that God alone is to fill. C.S. Lewis said, We're like fish who jump out of the ocean onto the shoreline looking for a better way of life. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying Paul had it right. It's in the absence of God that we crave things that are not God. That are poor substitutes for God. And mark my words, when we find those things whatever you're trying to put in your heart that is not God, when we find them, we will eventually and inevitably be not only disappointed in those things, we'll despise them. Why? Because they'll let us down. They're not the functional saviors that we thought they were. It doesn't matter the thrill. It doesn't doesn't matter the high. It doesn't matter the fantasy fulfilled. It does not matter what it is. Whatever we try to put in that hole will not satisfy us. And eventually, we will hate the things that we long for. Jonathan Edwards, a great 18th century American preacher, said, What you idolize, inevitably, you demonize. How does it work that way, you ask? Because we put so much weight on it. We put so much energy into it. And then it collapses. And then we hate it. Again, even a marriage can collapse if we think that our spouse, who may be beautiful and wonderful and have it all together, is God-shaped. The reality doesn't fulfill the expectation. There's this great picture of this idea in in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, How many of you enjoyed the movies? Anybody? A few of you. Um, It's published in book form in the 1950s. And as I understand, there was a lady who wrote Mr. Tolkien a letter and said, your series is silly. How can you posit a dark lord that puts all of his power into something as, as losable as, as a ring? 
as vulnerable as a, a ring. How can it be that the dark Lord would put all of, all of everything that he is in, inside some kind of little object? And he wrote her back and he said, I understand it appears unbelievable, ma'am, but this is precisely what humanity does. You are the dark Lord, madam, and so am I. And we invest all of our energy, all of our hope, all of our power into external things other than God. Whether it's money or the praise of others or security, our life depends on and revolves around one thing. If it does, it's dangerous. Paul says, you people were foolish, you were disobedient, you were led by your passions, you were living in malice and envy. This is who you were. I'm simply stating the facts. Would we all agree with him that something is majorly wrong with the human heart? We've grown in our ability to filter with our age but we are dead in our sin. That's what the Bible teaches. We mask ourselves. What else is true? Look at verse 4. But, now the word word but is used a lot around the Burris household, but that's a different but. My four-year-old and seven-year-old always using that word. This one is an encouraging word. But, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is beautiful. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The beauty of the gospel is in the word, but. Notice before Paul gets the word even, he brings us face to face with our need for God. I think that's such an important part of our evangelism strategy. We we cannot fully appreciate what God has done for us unless we fully understand the depravity of our humanity. Um, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, far more eloquent than, than I could have said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Francis Schaeffer was once asked, what would you do if you met a modern man on a train and had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel. And Schaefer said, I'd spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he's morally dead. And then I'd take the last 10 to 15 minutes to preach the good news of the gospel. 
That's what Paul does in Titus. By the way, if you're uh, wondering this morning, the temperature of this room is, is not uh, being used to remind you of hell. I just want you to know that. Uh, the thermostat is broken, so we hope to have that repaired uh, this week. We tried to let in some air, but it doesn't seem to be um, working as well as we'd hoped. Or at some point, that door was shut. We had it open. Paul writes next, verses 4 and 5, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. We did all the sinning. God did all the saving. Amen? It's all Jesus. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. From start to finish, salvation is a gift to us. There was no goodness in our hearts. But there was goodness in God's heart. Thank God. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, Paul writes, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I um, just want you to imagine this morning you leave church. This is a bit grim. But you leave church and you, you wake up and find yourself, even though you're aloof to what's happened, in an ambulance. You come uh, to consciousness and there's somebody there over you with all kinds of tubes and, and instruments. And he says to you, you've been in an accident. I'm a medical professional. There's nothing you can do to recover. Stay still. I'm here and I'm working on saving your life. It's exactly what Jesus asks of us. Stay still. Receive the gift. Allow me to save you. I'm going to do all the work. Just rest in the gift. I love the word washing. I don't know about you, but OxyClean in our home is like gold. It is so valuable. And there's nothing cooler than seeing something actually happen in real life like it happens on the infomercial. But it does with OxyClean. It's a miracle. I mean, something will be so soiled, and then it's so clean. And that's exactly what Jesus does with the human soul. He purifies us. Though we were as scarlet, now we are as white as snow. He forgives us. We don't have to live in shame and guilt to the glory of God. Every one of us has skeletons in our closet. Every one of us bumps into somebody in life and maybe it's a little awkward because we've wronged them or they've wronged us. It's okay to experience the awkwardness. It's not okay to live in the regret. We're forgiven. Amen? It's awesome having a clean conscience in Jesus. It is white. We are pure. Forgiven. 
That's Paul's indicative. That's his declaration. Those are the facts. That's the gospel. What's the imperative? In other words, he wasn't just giving a doctrinal lecture about what happened at the cross. He wants something to happen in each of us with the knowledge we have. He's urging us towards some kind of behavior. So the first truth or imperative is for the non-believer. You, if you are unbelieving, must be born again. You must receive the free gift that God has so generously offered all men and all women. You've got to. The grace God intends to give you must be received. And you cannot receive it by believing that you're just a little brown spot on an otherwise perfectly good banana. You won't understand the beauty of your salvation. You have to see yourself as a bad banana. You have to know that you're in need of a miracle. You have to know that you're beyond disrepair and that you're in need of salvation and of saving. You need to see yourself as a sinner in need of a rescue. And if you do and receive his gift, Jesus promises to save. Here's the imperative for believers. Remember to be humble. Remember to be humble. We are not morally superior to other people. We cannot treat non-Christians with condescension. Listen to what Paul wrote. We read it. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various kinds of passions and pleasures, passing our day. I'll tell you how we should treat non-believers. I too used to be a slave to various kinds of passions. I know exactly where you are. You're lost. I get it. I used to be there. Were it not for God's grace, I'm not in a position to judge you. That is not my job. I'm here to show you the love of Jesus that he's so graciously shown to me. Stay humble. God did not save us because we were smarter than others. God did not save us because we were better than others. He did not save us because we're more privileged than others. He did not save us because we're on the right side of the tracks and others are on the wrong side of the tracks. Be 
grateful that though undeserving Jesus saved us. It has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with us. Amen. And allow that in humility to motivate you, to incentivize you, to challenge you, to serve, to do good deeds, to act, not unto self-promotion, but unto self-sacrifice, to give yourself away for the cause of Christ. Might I brag on my nearly retired mother-in-law for a moment? She's going to El Salvador. I just think it's pretty cool. Do you know you're not too old to go to El Salvador? Not to suggest that her age is old or anything. Did you know that you don't have an excuse to do the things of God? I don't know Salvador in particular, but the things of God in general. What is he, in response to his grace, calling you to do? And are you doing it? Paul says, these are the things that will authenticate our faith to the people outside. Um... I love the creeds, um, and I think it's the Nicene Creed. In it, it says, I believe in the church. Why was it said then, and why ought we say the creed now? Because, frankly, we don't have a lot of belief in the church anymore. And I'll tell you, people in the world certainly don't have a lot of belief in the church anymore. Millennials in general, they say, are into moralistic, therapeutic deism. That means they want everything to do with God and nothing to do with what institution? The church. Why is that? Might it be because we've let the world outpace us in soup kitchens and in adoptions and in foster care and in service in our civil spheres and every other act that we ought to be motivated to by the grace of the gospel? Might it be that generally speaking, we look like the world in the world? And not like the church in the world. Now I'll tell you this. I believe in the local church. I'm still. I, I think it's the. Jesus said in fact himself. On this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm saying that generally. If the view of today's young people and outsiders is there's something wrong with the church, then by gosh, we ought to look at that. Paul says in conclusion, the whole book, the saying is trustworthy. 
I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? To good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What's the point? He says in the last couple of verses, don't be distracted by quarrels and genealogies and controversies, divisiveness. These are all unprofitable. These are all worthless. The point is that we ought to keep the main thing, the main thing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would compel us, Lord, to out of response to your grace, saved by your grace, through our faith, and to good works, that we would respond by doing things that you described as excellent and profitable. Lord, I just pray that our spirits would would resonate with and overflow with the beauty of your salvation. Lord, that we'd fully grasp what you've done on our behalf. Brutally beaten, marred, pierced, slain, and resurrected and alive. And I just pray that we, Lord, out of that truth, out of that indication, that we might be impressed to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.